me, Christians like me, we tend to really dislike songs like that, that I feel like are focused more on me than on him. Because if you're calling it a worship song, what are we worshiping if it's more about me than it's about him? I think there's good reason for me not to like that song. But I want to be careful here because sometimes I, people like me, can make the Christian life feel like there's just no blessing to it. I don't want my problem with a song like that or the ideas behind it to be more about my problem with you saying that there's a blessing coming to you through God, in God, rather than me just saying that you're emphasizing the wrong things, that you're overemphasizing the wrong things. Me, I can tend to emphasize so much that the Christian life is a radical denial of yourself, that it is such a denial of everything that you used to hold dear. That it is, whenever we really understand it, a life of persecution and suffering and pain in this world, in the pursuit of eternal joy and glory in the next world. Okay, I can emphasize all of those things which are true so much that I forget to remind you that the Christian life actually is a blessing. My problem with the song, my problem with the ideas behind it can't be that it has something good to say because the Christian life, the gospel, is the best thing that you can hear. It has the best thing to say to you. While today's sermon, today's text, certainly I hope has both elements in it, that the Christian life is a denial of yourself. It is you taking up your cross and following Christ on the life that he has called you to. That is what it is. It is nothing less than that. However, it is also an immense blessing that has been given to you. We are blessed as Christians. We're blessed in this life. We're called to be a blessing as Christians. So today, I hope that we'll be able to see how closely tied those two ideas are. We'll be able to see the blessing of the Christian life in three dimensions today. We'll see three dimensions of the blessing of the Christian life in today's text. The first dimension of the blessing in the Christian life that we see in our text today is that the Christian life is a life which is blessed. It's a blessing that we're given. Look at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Peter begins today's section with finally. When we were discussing these verses in our intern meeting this week, which is something that we do every week, I meet with our interns and we look over the next week's sermon text so that they're prepared to read it and hear about it, so that they can give me their thoughts on it, so that I can take all that into account whenever I'm trying to prepare my sermon. We do that every week. And this week, whenever I asked them, what do you think about this? The first thing that Jaden said was, well, he says finally, but we're like in the middle of chapter three, right? He's got like Two whole chapters after this. He starts by saying, finally, and then we've got all of this space behind it. What does he even mean? Like, what what point in saying finally is there if that's how he starts and then keeps going for so long? He went to the Baptist preacher school of writing. But though it is finally, it's finally not really. I think he's saying finally here to summarize what he said to this point about Christian fellowship in the church, that uh, how we should live together as Christians. So much of what he says in today's text is really a summation of what he's been saying in the first two chapters up to this point. Everything that we see today is something that he's also said before we get to today. Verse 8 focuses on how we treat each other in the church. Verse 9 focuses on how we should treat those outside the church. And then verse 10 through 12, that gives us a reason why we should live these kind of lives. So the finally 
really is the, the beginning of the end of this section on the church and our fellowship together and why we should live in such a way as to show the people around us what God has done for us by our lives. And this part of this section begins with unity of mind. Those of us in the church should have unity of mind on the biggest, the most important things in life. We know what we believe. We know why we believe it. So then whenever it comes to really anything else, when it comes to colors and decisions and classes, we should be able to have a right foundation that we're starting from. The same truth, the same gospel. We don't always immediately agree. We aren't looking for uniformity. You don't have to always automatically be on the exact same page as every other person. But we should have unity of mind, particularly on the things that really matter. So then even amid disagreement, we move forward as one in pursuit of a higher goal, in pursuit of God's goal for us. Okay, that's a blessing that we're given to have that kind of unity of mind. The world around us, it may be fractured, but we are to be united. Every one of these that he tells us here, specifically in verse 8, is distinct to how we live in the church. It's supposed to be particularly true of us here. There's something different about this way of life from how the people around us are going to live. Okay, we as people just are as fractured as we have ever been in a lot of respects. That's how it feels. It feels like no one around us can agree on anything. It feels like our normal levels of disagreement, that I think this thing and you think that thing, that that has somehow given way to a more vitriolic, a more tribal instinct. It's not pretty. So many of us, so many of the people around us are defined more by who we hate than what we believe, what we love. But Peter's saying, let that not be true in the church. Let us be united. Let us stand together on the truth of the Word of God as the basis for our unity. Let us keep a really firm grip on our gospel, on the truth of God's Word, and a really open hand on the stuff that does not matter. Let us be able to reason, to think through what we do and how we think with charity, knowing what's worth taking a stand on, what is worth dying on that hill, and what's something that we can just agree to disagree on. What's something that we can say, well, that's not how I would have done it, but that's okay. And as we pursue that kind of unity, I think we should also have sympathy for one another, the text says. Just as last week we saw that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, To a certain extent, that's how you're to deal with everyone in this room. We take their lives into account. We have sympathy for them in their situation, knowing that they're dealing with the weight of this fallen world on their shoulders just like you are. If we were able to do that, what a blessing that would be. But I think this seems to be particularly hard for people like us sometimes. Right? We have firm convictions we know from God's word how this word is designed, how this world is designed to work in so many respects. We know how things should be. We tend to be very black and white. We know this is what it's supposed to be, and anything other than this is wrong. We know the standard that's supposed to be met. So then what tends to happen is when the people around us inevitably fall short of that standard, and we all do, and we all will, it really just burns us up. Why can't they just show up on time? Why can't that kid be quiet? Why are they sitting when everyone else is standing? 
Well, I think if we begin with sympathy, if we begin with living with each other in an understanding way, I think we'll be able to get past these things a whole lot easier. I mean, maybe they're late because getting their kids out of the house now is just as hard as it was for you when yours were at home. Okay, maybe that kid can't be quiet in the service now, but he's actually trying his best. And there's going to come a day where he succeeds, where he's able to sit and pay attention and worship and listen. Maybe the person who's sitting during worship is sitting not because they don't want to sing, not because they don't want to worship, not as a protest, not because they don't want to worship the same God that you're worshiping, but because they physically cannot stand that long. I think a little sympathy, a little love, that covers a multitude of sins here. It helps us to have the kind of lives among ourselves in this church that lets us live together in an understanding way. And I think this is really distinct to us as Christians. It's hard to really see that enacted in any other realm of life. If we can do this, that's a different kind of life than anyone else is living. Right? We're not TikToking our annoyances. We're not hoping that everyone else will pile on with us because that person at the gym was standing in front of the weight that we wanted. We are, out of sympathy for them, doing all that we can do to help them. And really, that's what love looks like. And we're supposed to have a brotherly love toward each other, the text says. I talked more about this concept of brotherly love back in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 22. But remember that this love is deep. It's costly. Its defining feature that is, is that it does not go away. That you are still brothers tomorrow, no matter what happens today. And that's totally distinct, Right? I mean, who else experiences this kind of blessing in their lives other than us? We don't see this kind of example in most people's lives. You get one mistake and then you're canceled. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You get one, the second one, I will not allow to happen. We won't allow ourselves to keep loving them even past just one or two transgressions. Sometimes we mask it in the concept of self-care, that you just have to cut toxic people out of your life because they aren't helping you have a better life. But brotherly love doesn't look like that. Yeah, you're right. They shouldn't sin against you. You're right. They should do better. And yes, you can love them without being a sucker for them, without staying in a harmful situation. But you likely can't love them and bail on them. You have to be willing to be defrauded by your brother or sister in Christ because if you can stop loving them, I don't think you ever really did love them. It's a blessing to experience this kind of brotherly love in our Christian community. But even though they might sin against you 70 times, seven times, you can't allow yourself to grow hard-hearted toward them. Peter tells us to have a tender heart. We don't stop feeling the pain that they might inflict on us. But we also don't build up walls of distrust just because we've been burned before. We don't put on a hard shell. We don't put on a cold exterior as a way to protect ourselves and our hearts. We have to stay tenderhearted, soft-hearted. We have to keep putting ourselves out there, putting our best foot forward going the extra mile for the people who are around us. 
when they ask you for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. We're the first ones through the breach. You owe your fellow Christian the benefit of the doubt in every circumstance, in every time. When it's clear they're in the wrong, you can acknowledge that, but you should be assuming the best in them right up until the point that you can't do that anymore. That's the kind of tender-hearted interactions we have to have with our fellow Christians in order for us to live this kind of blessed life. And that's a blessing we all want to be able to enact, but it's also surely one we want ourselves, right? I want you to forgive me a thousand times because I know I'm going to mess up a thousand times. So if you say you get three and you're done, I've been talking for like 15 minutes now. I might have already gotten to my three in some of your minds. I need that much grace. And if you're honest with yourself, you need that much grace. So we have to be tenderhearted toward one another as we interact, as we live together in the Christian life. Not even ignoring the sins against one another but continuing to move forward and allowing ourselves to be the ones who take the initiative to extend the benefit of the doubt every time. All these things that I've just talked about from verse 8, these things are how we're supposed to treat each other, really because this is how Christ has treated us. These are the blessings we have received from Him in Him. All right, He's with us. He's broken down the walls of division between us and each other and between us and him. His kingdom is not divided, so now we have a refuge for our divided souls. We have unity now in the one that we are united to. He's sympathetic toward us. He has compassion on his people when he sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. The bruised reed he will not break. The smoking flax he will not snuff out. Okay, you're reminded of that every week in our call to worship. To all who are bruised and burnt, he will not break you. He's sympathetic to our weaknesses. He knows your pain. He meets you in that same pain and weakness. Not to point it out to you, but to make up for it. To receive his glory through that weakness. Showing his strength where you are lacking. His love for you, it's not conditional based on how well you follow through how well you hold up your end of the bargain. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are his fellow heir, and Christ loves you with a brotherly love, so you can rest easy that that love will not go away. And his heart toward you, it's tender. It's forgiving. That forgiveness is the the basis for all these blessings that we're talking about today. Without that forgiveness, he can't show you his love in the way he has. And without it, you can't love your fellow church member in the way you're supposed to. Ephesians makes roughly the same point. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So forgive your fellow church member when they sin against you, because they will. Because God in Christ has forgiven you in the same way, but to a much greater degree. So then Peter ends this verse focused on our conduct toward each other in the church with one final reminder about the way you view yourself. You see, we will never nail everything he's calling us toward here. 
you are never going to perfectly enact unity and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart. You're not going to do it. No chance. You are not up to the task. But there may come a day when you think you've nailed it. There may come a time, a season, when you look at how you treat other people and you assume that you're just perfectly putting this verse into practice. And then, so because of that, Peter ends this verse with an admonition to have a humble mind. He reminds us that though we will improve here, though we'll hopefully be better at this with every passing day, enacting these blessings we've been given, we can't think that we're doing this in our own power. We can't allow ourselves to become puffed up in pride when we do the right thing. We have to have humble minds among ourselves, even as we get better and improve. Okay, that humility is a blessing that we receive from him. And and if I could be honest here, I absolutely love you all. I love this church. I think that what I was told about you before I came here to be your pastor is true of you, that you are good Christian people who love Jesus and want to honor him. Okay, we're not perfect by any means, I can point out examples in my mind I've seen of us not putting these other things into practice. But I think we do a really good job. I think we're trying. But if there's an area of this that I were to point to, it would actually be humble mind that I think that we're the worst at. I think we tend to think that we're doing the other things so well that eventually we look around and say, We're nailing it. And that's when we've lost our humble mind. When we think that we're perfect, when we think that we are not ever seeing any weaknesses that need to be fulfilled in this. I don't think we're as good at the humble mind as we probably think we are. And that's maybe the clearest indicator that we don't have this kind of mind among ourselves. We're not always loud and obvious with how we boast or show our pride, but if you listen, I think you can hear it. You can hear it in this church when you hear someone say, man, this church just never disagrees. We always get along. You can hear it when you hear someone say, that church down the street may have more people, but they don't treat each other like family how we do. We here, we care about missions here. Look at how much money we give to missions. Okay, none of those things are bad. Those things are good and true, I think. At least none of them are wholly untrue. But I think a group of people with a humble mind among us, and I think I'm as guilty as anyone in this room of this, but a group of people with a humble mind that we share is way less focused on talking about what we're doing right than what God is asking us to do next. A humble mind isn't wasting time patting itself on the back when there are lost people around us dying and going to hell. And that would be true even if everything that we said about ourselves were perfectly accurate. Even if we were always perfectly unified, and we're not. Even if we had perfect community and fellowship, constantly welcoming in newcomers into that same level of familiarity, bringing them in like brothers and sisters in the same faith that we have so that they are welcome to the same family benefits and friendship that we have, and we don't. Even if we were somehow single-handedly keeping the International Mission Board up and running so that they could spread the gospel, and we're not. 
then focusing on these good things and talking about them all the time, more than we talk about the things we need to work on, more than we talk about the great commission that is left unfulfilled, I think that would still betray that we just don't have a humble mind. I think that's an area that we can grow in. In this Christian life, which is blessed. We get to experience things in this church through the gospel that those on the outside only can dream of. And we can't ever lose some of those things internally that make us so great, that show the gospel and God's work among us so clearly. But we also can't always have our eyes focused inward, looking only at each other, looking only at the things that we like about ourselves. We can't do that because the Christian life is also, though it is a life which is blessed by these things, it is also supposed to be a life which blesses. That's the second dimension of blessing in the Christian life from today's text. The Christian life is a life which blesses. It's a blessing that we give outwardly. Verse 9, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So we don't get to seek revenge. I think you have to remember the context here. Peter's writing to a church that is currently under persecution, which is about to experience even more and more persecution, and he's trying to prepare them for this. So the temptation to get revenge would have been really strong among them. The inclination to assert our rights, to punch back, that would have been just a natural reaction to everything that they were going through and would go through soon. But Peter's saying, I won't allow you, God won't allow you to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. You may be mistreated, but you don't get to turn that back on them. You may have terrible things said about you, but you don't get to return the favor on that. No, he tells us to bless rather than repay. We're supposed to extend to them what they haven't extended toward us. Okay, they gave you evil, but you give them a blessing. They curse your name, but you bless theirs. Verse 8, that seems more applicable within the church. But hopefully this verse is more applicable to those outside the church rather than our fellow Christians. Hopefully the evil that we experience and the reviling we hear is coming from those who aren't among us. Okay, we may not like the flag a local business flies, but that doesn't mean we rip it down. It means we bless them. We may not think our school district made the right decision on something, but we don't harass them, we bless them. Toward those who are on the outside, we have an assumption, actually, coming into the interaction that we are going to be mistreated. And we also have an assumption going into that interaction that when you mistreat me, I am going to respond to that mistreatment with blessing rather than a curse. But just because I do think this verse is more directed to how we deal with those outside the church, that doesn't mean that all bets are off among ourselves. Hopefully, We don't experience this kind of evil and reviling from one another. But when we do, and again, let's be honest, we're still sinners, so we will. Let us already have made the decision to respond in this way. Our life is a life which does not seek revenge, but rather it seeks to bless. It seeks to reach out to them, to treat those in these walls and outside these walls with all these things that we saw in verse 8. That's the life that we've been called to as Christians. It says, on the contrary, bless. 
For to this you were called. Again and again, we're reminded every week that the life of a disciple of Jesus Christ that Peter is pushing us toward is not a life that is easy. It's impossible to do these things and also look the same as who you once were. It's impossible to do these things and look the same as everyone around you. It's hard. It's impossible apart from the Holy Spirit doing a work in your life and in your heart. But guess what? That's what we've been called to. And look here, Peter's not naive. He knows what this looks like. He's not saying that this is easy. He's not saying that he's just going to say this and you're going to be able to nail it on day one. He saw the life that Jesus lived firsthand. He experienced that nomadic poverty every day. He knows what a life following Jesus looks like. He lived it. And he also knows what it looks like to reject these same ideas. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, who drew his sword and started chopping off ears? Peter. Okay, he was repaying evil for evil on that day. Who told Jesus to buck up that he didn't have to suffer and die to be the Messiah? Peter. He, at least at that point, in that moment, thought the Christian life doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be painful. It doesn't have to be something that ends in a cross. He's been there. He knows that these ideas that he's saying now are counterintuitive. He knows we're not going to nail it. But more than that, he knows that it's what God has commanded of us. He knows it's what Christ has modeled for us. The Christian life is a life which blesses, even in the face of evil, even in the face of suffering and pain and persecution. We don't get to get revenge. We don't get to repay that evil with more evil. Our calling is to bless. So the Christian life is a blessing that we give. And we have to start seeing this calling as a feature of the Christian life rather than a bug because the Christian life itself is a blessing. That's the third and final dimension of blessing in the Christian life in today's text. The Christian life is a blessing. Okay, so the blessing is intrinsic to the life itself. By having the life, you now have the blessing. Look back at verse 9, the end. Bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The Christian life is a blessing intrinsically because it allows us to love life and to see good days. Okay, Peter here is quoting from Psalm 34. It's just slightly changed so that he answers the question the psalm asks in his quote. But he's basically doing it word for word other than that. He's saying that if you want to live the life you live, to love the life you live, and to see good days in that life, then this Christian life to which you've been called, that's the kind of life you have to live. You will not have a love of life and days that are good without it. That's a blessing. He has, absolutely, God has called us to that which is harder, to that which is impossible apart from Him. But He's also offering us that which is better. 
He's giving us way more than we're sacrificing by living the life that we live in light of his gospel. He's no slave master whipping us and telling us to make bricks without giving us any straw. He is lovingly coaxing us into the life that he's designed for us. He's offering way more carrot than he does stick. I mean, who doesn't want to love life? Right? What's the alternative to loving life? If you don't love it, I mean, you'll hate it. At least not like it. But living is the one thing that you are always doing as long as you're alive. If you don't love life, you can't really love anything else. I mean, Pepsi and college football, they're good, but I don't think they could overcome it if you don't love the life which allows you to enjoy them. I have never in my life heard someone sincerely say that things are just going too well for them. Morning, how's it going? It's too good. Things have got to, things have got to get worse a whole lot quicker. Like George Costanza, thinking that God would never let him be successful, so the TV show will never get picked up. No, this is too good. I'm ready for the other shoe to drop. In fact, I want it to happen. This is uncomfortable for things to be going this well for me. No one is ever having too many good days where they're just hoping that they could get back to gloom and doom. So you know what would really hit the spot right now? A head cold. Doesn't that sound nice? Some flimmy headaches would just really turn this whole good days thing around. Everything gets worse with a head cold, so that's what I want. We all want these things, right? To love life and to see good days. And that's what God is offering to us. I might not like the blessing and songs like it because they focus solely on a generic blessing that has nothing to do with the gospel. But shame on me if I ever say that God doesn't bless you. That he doesn't give you abundantly more than all that you could ask or think. Because he does. He has. Make no mistake, the Christian life is hard. You're going to endure pain and suffering just for being a Christian. Especially if you're doing it right. Peter reminds us of this over and over in this book. But this life that he has called us to is also a massive blessing when you experience it. I truly believe that I am able to experience more joy as a Christian than I ever could if I weren't one. We're blessed. The colors are brighter. The days feel longer. The nights feel shorter. The food feels like it tastes better. We're blessed. But what's important about Peter's quotation here isn't just what he says in the quote he gives. It's also what the rest of that psalm says. He quotes verses 12 through 16. They say basically exactly what he's saying here. But right before that, in verses 8 through 10, it says in Psalm 34, 8 through 10, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. So David in the psalm is telling us before he talks about the good days that we'll have that the Lord is who and what is good. It's when we have him that we now have the chance at loving life and seeing good days. And I don't think he's just telling us the means through which we'll get to those blessings. I don't think he's saying if you want 
to love life and have good days, go to God, go through God to get to the good life and the good days. I think he's saying that if you want good life and good days, go to God and in him you have a love of life and good days. That you have been blessed in him, through him, by him, when you receive him, and that in him all of those other blessings are found. All of those other desires have been met. It's when we have him that we now have the chance at loving life and seeing good days. He's not saying to fear the Lord so you'll get these things. He's saying that when you come to the Lord, the days with him are the good ones. We don't come to God to get the good stuff that he's promised us. Though we do truly get the good, imperishable, and eternal stuff when we come to him. We come to God through his gospel. And when we receive him, we've received all things in him. The good news, the gospel, it's not a route to something better. The good news is that when you come to God in repentance and faith, you have him, which is infinitely better than anything else you might have wanted before. We don't taste that the Lord is good so that the good, taste, good days taste better. We taste that the Lord is good because that goodness we have tasted in him far surpasses any other good thing that we might be after. Taking refuge in him, that's a blessing unto itself. When you fear him, you have no lack because in the eyes of the only one who matters, you are perfect. Those who come to the Lord lack no good thing because he is the good thing. So what else is there to want? Peter's reminding us of the cost of the life that we've been called to, but he's also reminding us of the surpassing worth of what we've been given. No, we haven't been called to health, wealth, and prosperity. What we've been called to is being silently spit on. We've been called to turning the other cheek, to hearing people lie and yell and hate us while we just take it. Okay, those things will not always be good for your earthly health. It's not going to give you any kind of wealth that we might experience here. We won't look like we have it all together in this life. But it's actually of a greater health, of a greater wealth, and the ultimate prosperity, if we'll actually see that. Psalm 34 again confirms that though we will lack no good thing, we still experience the worst that this life has to offer. Psalm 34, verses 18 and 19, toward the end of it, says this, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the Christian spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Those who are righteous, you will be brokenhearted. You will be crushed in spirit. We will have many afflictions. But the Lord who has delivered us from the consequences of our own sins and the death that comes with them, he will deliver us out of those things as well. When Christ died on the cross for your sins, after living the perfect life that you straight up could not live on your own, when he silently went to the cross without repaying evil for evil, without repaying reviling with reviling, he took on himself every sin that you could ever commit so that he might deliver you from those sins. He died for you so that you wouldn't receive the justice you deserve. And then he rose from the grave to win for each and every one of us the hope and promise of new life in him. That he is not only delivering us from our sins, but also bringing us into new life through him. So now, when you hear that message, when you hear that good news of who Christ is and what he's done for you, you can respond to that message 
with repentance and faith. You can believe that he did these things for you. And you can decide to place all of your faith, hope, and trust in him and his finished work on your behalf so that he might actually deliver you, so that you might actually have him, and so that now your pursuits will change. As verse 11 says, you can now turn from evil and do good. You can seek peace and pursue it. Not to earn his salvation that he's already given to you, but to live in line with that salvation as a response to that salvation. All these blessings we've talked about today, the the life which is blessed, because it's able to experience all these things in the church from verse 8. The life which blesses because of what God has done in and through us. The life that does the hard things that are better and lives totally differently from the world around us. And the blessing of this life itself, that there's something in this life which is a blessing itself. That in coming to God, we have received the blessing already. These blessings, they can all be yours. And actually, you only have two options here. Verse 12 makes that clear. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The only way that you can be counted among the righteous rather than among those who do evil isn't by being better. It's by having Christ's righteousness given to you. If you are his, then his eyes are on you and his ears are open to your prayer. But if you're not, then the evil you commit, the sins you commit, they're still on you. And ultimately, his face is against you. The Christian life, it is a blessing, but it is a particular blessing. It's only for those who come to him and receive it, who respond to his call in your life. But that call, that's being made today. He's showing you the truth of his gospel and his blessing today. So this life of blessing is freely available to all who repent and believe. So repent and believe today. Receive the true blessing of the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you've done for us. Thank you for the chance to be able to read your word with your people. Thank you for the blessings we've received through you and in you. That as we come to you and enter your church, that we might be able to see these kinds of things enacted in our lives. That we might have humble minds, tender hearts, sympathy, brotherly love, unity of mind. We want these things for ourselves. So we ask that you'll help us enact them, be obedient to them. But God, we also want to be a blessing. We know we haven't been called to this life just for ourselves, just so that we might have it and hold it, but that we might show it, reveal it, so that we might respond appropriately, even when evil is done against us, that we might, rather than cursing them, bless them. And God, help us to see that all of our desires are made in you, All of our blessings are found in you. All of our joy is found in you. Let us be satisfied in you more and more every day. And know that as we are satisfied in you, that you are glorified through that satisfaction. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.